Amen. Well, good morning, church. You can grab a seat. It has been good to be together worshiping the Lord this morning, and we are going to continue to pursue after him as we open up his word together this morning. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you want that out, you want that on your lap and ready to go. If you didn't bring one with you this morning, uh, there are Bibles on the seats in front of you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's word open and uh, looking at it together this morning. Well, we've been going through a series for uh, more than a year now looking at the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And as we've been doing this, uh, we've kind of been taking the boots on the ground approach, if you will. Uh, it's almost as if we have been walking with Jesus and his disciples throughout this book and seeing the things that Jesus is doing. Uh, it's like the times where the disciples are fearful, we almost feel that same fearfulness. The times that the disciples step back and are amazed at the things that Jesus is saying, the things that Jesus is doing, uh, we've stepped back and been amazed at what the Lord is doing in this series. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of zoom out and take a look at the bigger picture as we continue on in our series. Because if we don't do this... If we don't take a morning to look at the bigger picture of what's happening in the next eight weeks of our series, we are going to miss the magnitude of this message that the gospel of Mark is all about. And so this morning, we're stepping back, looking at the big picture, and we have no easy task as we are going to talk about the entirety of the Bible. So we've been going through a series with our students over the last year and a half, we probably have another year and a half to go. We've called it redemption, where we're tracing the story of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I am going to try and accomplish in about the next 40 minutes what I've tried to do in over three years. So just in case things get a little out of control, we'll cater in lunch and dinner if necessary. Just get comfortable. We have a lot of work to do this morning. Well, as we look at God's word, we've really been going, trying to impress upon our students and upon ourselves as we've been going through this series, uh, really two presuppositions that are absolutely necessary and vital to understanding this book that we have here this morning. And the first one is this. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. There are 66 books in the Bible, and yet there's nothing about them that is disconnected. It's not Aesop-like fables that are there to teach us some morality lesson. No, instead, there is a definite plot line and where all of the parts come together to form this whole picture. It's not disconnected. It's all one story. The second thing is this. The Bible is not primarily about you and me and what we should do. You see, I think so oftentimes, at least for me growing up in Sunday school, I think the model is this. We tell these great stories of these heroic men of the faith, and then at the end, we challenge our children growing up hearing these stories for the first time, hey, you need to have the faith of Daniel to remain steadfast when persecuted for the gospel, or you need to have the courage of David and face the giants in your life. I've heard that message before. That is not primarily what the Bible is about. Those things are good and they are helpful. But that's not the ultimate message. See, the Bible is primarily about Jesus Christ and what he has done. The Bible is not primarily about you and me and what we need to do. The Bible is primarily about Jesus Christ 
and what he has done. So what exactly has Jesus done? I want to start this morning with the gospel. Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, you know that all of our joy, all of our hope in life and in death, we even go as far to stake our eternity on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to give it to you this morning in two sentences. And it's this. Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. And God will save you if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. And God will save you if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I want all of us for just a second here to leave this room mentally with me, okay? Uh, And what I want you to do is picture that you are a missionary and you have been tasked with bringing this gospel, this message, to an unreached people group in some distant mountain community in India. And so you do all the training and you get ready to go and you're excited and you get on the plane and then you land and then you get on a train and then you get in an automobile and you probably take seven other types of transportation before you get to the foot of this mountain. And as you're standing there, you're getting ready to ascend and you cannot wait to share this gospel with these people. And so you start ascending up and as you look over, you see the village that you have been working all of this time to bring the gospel to. And you're met by one of the villagers. And somehow this villager speaks English, so there's no language barrier. And you tell him, you say, hey, uh, I've come and I have a message for you. And this villager looks at you and says, well, you don't look anything like me. You must not be from around here. And so he says, well, this must be a really important message if you've come all this way. Would it be okay if I gathered together my entire village and you just told all of us? And you're like, yes, that would be okay with me if we did that. And so they gather the entire village together and they're sitting in a room waiting to hear this message that you've brought. They put you up in front and you stand before them and you say, here is the good news. Here is the gospel of Jesus. He lived, died, and rose again for sinners. And God will save you if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Now, they're looking at you right now and you're not getting the reaction that you had anticipated. In fact, they're sitting around saying, Uh, who is Jesus? Why should I care about him? Why does this have any bearing on my life right now? You see, if you remember this picture at the beginning of our series, the question is, why does something that happened in this one little spot on the globe have universal ramification? Why does it matter to every single one of us sitting in this room right now? I mean, who is Jesus? Why should I care And what does it have to do with me? That's why it's important to look at this story in light of the whole. Uh, It's kind of like in a staff meeting. Uh, Doug, Nick, and Nate, they're all coming in and they start talking. Uh, Any 24 fans in here, maybe? I don't even know really what it is. Uh, But they come together in a staff meeting and they say, oh man, it was the coolest thing. Like just at the last minute, Jack busted down the door, saved the president, and it was so cool. Pastor Eric and I are looking at each other like, who is Jack? Who's the president? Was he in trouble? Why should we care? Because we don't understand the whole story. See, that's why it's important. And if we're going to really grasp these next eight weeks in our series in Mark, that's why it's absolutely essential that we take a morning like this to zoom out and see this story in light of the whole. 
Now here at Harvest Bible Chapel, we love God's word. And typically when we get together on a Sunday morning, we open up to a particular passage and we walk through it verse by verse, sentence by sentence. And this morning is gonna be nothing like that. So just brace yourselves. Uh, If you're fast at flipping through the Bible like you aced all your sword drills in Sunday school, fantastic. You can follow along this morning. If you're a little bit slower or newer to God's word, I wanna encourage you, instead of trying to frantically flip back and forth this morning, uh, just write down maybe some of the verse references that I'm reading and the different passages that I'm talking about, and you can go look into those later and just use this time to listen intently. I promise you, I'm not going to make anything up. I'll read it right out of this book, okay? So don't feel the pressure uh, to have to go all over the place. So here's what I wanna do in the time that we have remaining. I wanna sketch the story of redemptive history, starting in Genesis and making our way to Revelation. And here's what, here's what the overview or the summary sentence for the entire Bible. So this is the Bible in one sentence. Are you ready? Here we go. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. This is the unified message of the entire Bible. And what we're going to see is that the Old Testament provides a foundation, and then the New Testament comes in and provides fulfillment of that foundation. So let's jump into the story. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 1-1 is where we begin. God's word says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go to verse 31 in chapter one, and it says, and behold, God looked at all that that he had created, and it was very good. God creates all things, and everything is good. It is perfect, it is right, it is just as God intended for it to be. We go to Genesis chapter two and we zoom in a little bit more on the story and we learn that mankind, humans, were created as the pinnacle of God's creation, created for the purpose of knowing God, loving God, enjoying God, and serving God. And things were very good. Well, we get to Genesis chapter three in the first seven verses, and we read that instead of serving God how we were created, we wanted God to serve us, setting ourselves up above him. Well, this breaks relationship with God and throws the whole world into upheaval. It results in spiritual, psychological, social, and physical decay and breakdown. Hey, you remember Mark chapter 13 last week where it talked about the horror and the persecution and the tribulation? Do you want to know where that comes from? It's right here in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3, where the entire world is flipped upside down and thrown into upheaval and decay and breakdown and chaos enters the story. Brothers and sisters, we are not in the garden anymore. Things are not the way that they should be. Things have been twisted, marred. How will God respond? 
You know, it's at this point in the conversation as we talk about the story that a lot of really good questions are raised. And I think it's okay that we ask the questions because we typically get to, it's like, well, wait a minute. If God is the creator of all things, how did sin and evil get into the picture? What's the snake doing in the garden? Was God not able to stop sin from entering into this picture? And I think that these are all good, right questions And this is where I want to introduce big God theology into the story. Because big God theology says this, God is not like you and me. Amen, right? God is not like you and me. He is wiser than our greatest wisdom. His thoughts are deeper than our deepest thoughts. His ways are so far above our ways. And because we serve this great God, and this great God is the creator of the universe, He is not the author of sin. He is not culpable. He cannot be held responsible for sin entering into the picture. And at the same time, God is not impotent. He is not powerless to stop sin from coming into the picture. And so somehow in the wisdom and the ways of God, this is going exactly according to plan. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This God, this creator God, the one who creates all things and sustain all things, he is perfect in his power and perfection, his goodness and glory. He sees all all of history in one glance, declaring the end from the beginning. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is sovereign over all things. He is the ruler over every subatomic particle in the universe. He is the ruler over all other rulers for all time. This is the creator. This is the big God that we're talking about in the Bible. It's not as if there's this cosmic boxing match going on between God and Satan, and it's like every now and then God gets in a couple of good jabs, and then Satan gets in a couple of good jabs. That's dualism. It's not biblical. That's not what this is about. There has never been a point where things have not gone according to God's plan. He is always in control with none to contend. And no matter what happens, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be confident that God is not in the heavens pacing back and forth nervously, thinking, I don't know how things got this way. How did we even get here? If only I could just, or if I would have known, then I would have done this. God has never been in that place before. His throne has never been moved an inch from eternity's past until eternity's future. And we can know that everything, for those of us who are in Christ, always works together for our good. Go to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, you don't have to turn there now, but Romans chapter eight talks about how God promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him. And so if you're in the hardest time in your life and you are in Christ, you can be confident that God is not pacing nervously and wondering how he's going to fix this. No, but he is in the middle of it, working all of it for your good. 
The end of Romans 8 declares that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Do you know what that means? It means that we don't just conquer or vanquish sin and evil, but actually God takes sin and evil and subjugates them and forces them to do good unto us. How amazing is our God? And so back to the story, Genesis chapter 3, chaos enters, sin enters. How will God respond? Does God respond in wrath? Or in love? The answer is yes. Genesis 3, the last 11 verses, 14 through 24. In wrath, God responds by cursing humanity to pain, suffering, death, and worst of all, banishment from his presence. God responds by cursing humanity. He is a holy God, and he demands right, and he will punish all evil and disobedience. And yet in the very same stroke, God responds in love. In the very same passage where God is cursing humanity for their disobedience, we see the first promise of redemption where God declares his intention to save and not allow all to perish in their sin. He promises that there will be a redeemer who is coming through the seed of a woman that will one day swallow up the curse. So in Genesis chapter 12, we pick up the story and begin moving throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's in this passage that God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. Abram is a childless old man whom the book of Romans describes as having a body that's as good as dead. Anyone want that being their descriptor? body as good as dead. This is Abraham. He's a childless man. And Yahweh, the creator God, comes to him and says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I want you to leave your family and your land and come to me to a place not yet known. And I promise you that through your offspring, one will come who will swallow up the curse and bring blessing to the entire nations. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, from Abraham, he does end up having a child. His name is Isaac. And then Isaac has a son whose name is Jacob. And then Jacob ends up having a whole lot of sons, 12 of them. And they become the 12 patriarchs or the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. You get to the end of the book of Genesis. And in chapter 49, Jacob is blessing his children before he dies. And he says to Judah, Judah, through you, The king is going to come, the redeemer from Genesis chapter three, the promised offspring through our father Abraham will come through your line. Well, Jacob and his family flee to Egypt as they're getting away from a famine in the land where they had lived. And as they go to Egypt, they are held in slavery for 400 years, 400 years as slaves. That means generation After generation, after generation, born slaves. Their father was a slave. Their father's father was a slave. Their grandfather's grandfather was a slave. God's people, knowing the covenants and the promises of God. And can you just imagine with me where they are crying out saying, God, where are you? God, can you hear us? Can you see what's happening? God, do you even care? Enter Moses. 
God raises up for his people a deliverer that takes them out of slavery and brings them to be his people. God delivers his people on a worldwide stage, demonstrating that he is Yahweh supreme and there are no other gods who can contend with him. Now, this is really important because it's only after the rescue from slavery that the Lord then makes a covenant with his people. This is called the old covenant. And it's essentially this. God promises to his people, he says, I will be your loving God if you will be my faithful people. So don't even worry about reading Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, like that's what it means right there, okay? Uh, I will be your loving God if you will be my faithful people. Well, very quickly, we learn that God's people cannot keep their end of the covenant and they turn to unfaithfulness. And so because of their disobedience and their failure to trust in the Lord, a whole generation passes away in the wilderness and God waits to bring in the next generation into the land that he had promised them. You know, and just before he brings them into the promised land, we have the book of Deuteronomy where it's reminding them of the law and God so sweetly reminds them of this in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And then he reminds them in verse nine, know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so God reminds the people before he brings them into the land. And through the book of Joshua, we see the conquest of the promised land, the place where God would bring his people and where life and success and blessing was all contingent upon their covenant faithfulness. The end of Deuteronomy, God says, if you obey all of these things, I will bless you in the land. If you disobey and turn to other gods, I will curse you and you will be disciplined in your sin. Well, we get to the end of the book of Joshua and the book of Judges opens up and we read in Judges chapter two, verse 10, that one generation passed having been settled in the land and the people did not know the Lord nor the mighty things that he had done. You see, it's not as if their fathers didn't tell them about being released from slavery and wandering in the desert for 40 years and seeing the Red Sea and the Jordan River parted. Surely they told them those stories. What it means is they knew these things, but they didn't care. They acted as if they were entirely irrelevant and had no bearing on their life whatsoever. We get to the end of the book of Judges, which is one of the most sick and twisted books in all of scripture, where the nation of Israel is spiraling downward out of control. And the summary is that in those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it was partly due because there was no king over Israel. 
Well, the end of that book sets the stage for the next chapter in redemptive history. We move into a united kingdom where it traces the story through First and Second Samuel of three failed kings. It begins with Saul. Saul comes up, he's the first king of Israel, and he does not serve the Lord in the way that Yahweh had called him to serve his nation. No, he turns the people from the Lord, he breaks faith with the Lord, and does things that are outside of the boundaries of what God has called him to do. And so because of that, the Lord rips the kingdom from Saul, and he gives it to his servant, David, the next king of Israel. David was far more faithful than Saul, and yet even David was a failed king in this united kingdom. Yet because of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, he continues this covenant made back in Genesis chapter 12 with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He makes a promise to David saying this, David, I will establish a kingdom with a son who reigns and mediates between God and his people that will endure forever so that God's chosen redeemed people might enjoy his rest and experience his glory, all for the purpose of exalting his name above all. That David, through you, there is going to be one who comes, and he is going to establish a kingdom that will endure forever. And in this kingdom, as him sitting as your king, his chosen redeemed people will be able to enjoy his glory and his rest also that the name of God might be exalted above all else. Well, after David, we meet his son, Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, the temple is constructed in Jerusalem. And this is like the pinnacle of Old Testament worship, when the nation of Israel was most following and being faithful to their covenant with the Lord. Well, just shortly after 1 Kings chapter 8 and the dedication of the temple, things start going downhill fast. Solomon turns to the ways of this world and pursues things that God made explicit that kings should not pursue. And because of that, right after him, the kingdom divides. And the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes become the kingdom of Israel, and the two southern tribes become the kingdom of Judah, and it's brother against brother dueling it out. Things are moving downhill quickly. First and second Kings gives us the narrative. It tells us the story of what happened. And then all of the major and minor prophets are telling us why these things are happening. And it's essentially this. Uh, they were unable to remain faithful to their end of the covenant, to be God's faithful people, to display rightly God's holy character to the nations. They had turned from Yahweh to other gods and pursued things, not the Lord. See, in this covenant, they could not remain faithful to Yahweh. So 2 Kings ends with a devastation of Jerusalem being sacked, the temple being destroyed, and God is bringing judgment on his people for their disobedience. Well, from here, we see that judgment is only heightened as the people are moved into exile. They're taken out of the land because if they couldn't live in the land obediently to the Lord, then the Lord would remove them from the land and he would discipline them so that they would learn to follow him faithfully. And as they're in exile, away from home, away from the temple, away from the presence of the Lord, it's clear that even then, 
their faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love continues to pursue them. And that's why we have books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Esther, where even in Babylon, we see that Yahweh God is the only God above all the gods, even the wisest and most powerful of Babylon, and that God is still about saving his people in the book of Esther as he rescues them from a situation where death is certain, that even in their disobedience and punishment, the Lord is faithfully pursuing them. Well, the end of this story is that God brings them back into the land as they await for the next chapter of redemptive history. And what we see throughout this uh, journey through the Old Testament is this. The old covenant that was established under Moses was a covenant which bore a ministry of condemnation that no one could be made righteous by works of the law, that the people were unable to remain faithful to their end of the covenant. And yet the Old Testament does not end in judgment, but it ends with an eye towards hope, that there is a promise of a new covenant, a better covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this, Behold, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This covenant that I'm going to make, this new one, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord? No, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So beautiful right here. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the hope that the Old Testament ends with. A promise of God forgiving his people's sins and remembering their iniquity no more. Well, the Old Testament closes with promises unfulfilled, which demands a sequel, a second part to God's redemptive story. And as we're seeing that God will, in fact, establish his kingdom promises and purposes. But we still have this unsolved question. You see, the people had still turned from the Lord in disobedience. And so how does the Lord respond? Will he respond by cutting off his people and being done with them forever? Or will he forgive and love his people regardless of their sin? Do you see the dilemma here that God is faced with? I'm frightened to even say dilemma that God is faced with. But from our end, looking at it, do you see the dilemma that's before the Lord? You see, if I cut off my people and say I will deal with them no more, then sin and evil win. And yet, if I sweep their unfaithfulness and their sin under the rug, then sin and evil win because I must deny my justice. See, Proverbs 17, 15 says, uh, the one who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So God's justice, his holiness, his righteousness demands 
that all sin be punished? How will God solve this seemingly unsolvable problem? This tension, brothers and sisters, is what sets the backdrop for the New Testament, for the climactic moment that we are going to be looking at over the next eight weeks of our series through Mark. How will God respond? What will be his solution? Turn with me now to the New Testament. The New Testament is the climax of one grand story. A story that begins in the Old Testament. And as we open to the New Testament, we're immediately met with the four Gospels. These are like biographies of Jesus' life, except not like the biographies that you and I are used to reading. No, these are more like stories of Jesus' death and resurrection with extended introductions. And so what we've been doing for the last year is we've been going through that extended introduction, seeing who Jesus is. We learn who he is as we've seen through this story from creation and fall and through the Old Testament. We now understand why Jesus had to come. And the next eight weeks in our series of Mark is how Jesus did it. How Jesus did what he had to do for the reason that he had to come. You know, so far in our series, we've seen the life of Jesus and we're getting ready to go towards his death and resurrection. And what we started with at the very beginning of our time this morning, the gospel, it now begins to make sense in light of this story, does it not? See, now we've answered the question, who is Jesus and why he had to come? And so now when we say something like Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners, and God will save you if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, now we understand why this matters, why it applies to us. And so the next eight weeks, we're going to see God work amazingly through Jesus Christ. As we go throughout the Old Testament, we come into the New Testament, here's what we find out about Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, who didn't fail his test in the garden. And where the first Adam failed and brought condemnation to all through one act of unrighteousness, so one act of righteousness by the second Adam now brings redemption and makes forgiveness of sins possible for all men. This Jesus whom we've been looking at and worshiping and whom we've given our lives to is the true seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, the promised redeemer who would come and rescue man from the curse. This Jesus is Abraham's offspring through Genesis chapter 12. And if you read in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is telling us that when that was written, the word Abraham's offspring is a singular word referring not to just his offspring in general, but to a certain offspring, this Jesus, the anointed Messiah King who is now on the scene. This Jesus is the inaugurator of the new covenant, the better covenant. That's not like the old covenant. He is better than Moses as the inaugurator of the new covenant. This Jesus is the true Israel. Where Israel could not keep their covenant side of the deal and their relationship with the Lord, Jesus comes and fulfills perfectly what Israel should have done. He is the one who fulfills all that they could not. This Jesus is also the son of man, living perfectly the life that God had intended man to live. 
He is the ultimate king who is the promised one from 2 Samuel chapter 7 through the line of David. He is the king that sits on David's throne and it is his kingdom that will be established forever. He is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, making his sacrifice of infinite worth and sufficient to satisfy the entire wrath of the father. He is the Isaiah 53 suffering servant, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is the Jesus that we have been talking about. This is the Jesus who in the next eight weeks of our study will die and rise again, conquering sin and death for eternity. You see, Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived. And in doing that, he earned all of God's blessing on obedience. But then Jesus came and died the death that we should have died, satiating the entirety of God's wrath. He took the curse by being hung on a cross, for it is written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. The promise that's made of redemption in the Old Testament comes to fruition in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how does God solve this seemingly unsolvable problem? Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter three. Everyone needs to go there because this is the best paragraph in the entire Bible. Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. And here we have as succinctly as possible how God solves this incredible problem. Romans three, starting in verse 21, says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our problem. And yet they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. And in it, it was to show God's righteousness, because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? It means that all of the sins from Genesis chapter 3 and every other sin after that until Jesus comes again, every other sin is only made possible to forgive through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what about the people in the Old Testament that came before Jesus? No, they were saved and find redemption by placing faith in Jesus Christ. You see, they put together a whole temple system of sacrifices, but goats and sheep and other animals could never satisfy to pay the penalty for sin. It was all symbolic, pointing towards the great sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. And so in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over those things, knowing that his plan would be established, and that he saw the end from the beginning, and that his purposes would be established in Christ. And now, verse 26, the best verse in the Bible. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that God 
might maintain his righteousness and he might be just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in Jesus. Problem solved. God doesn't do either or. He does both and. And in Christ, sin is fully punished and salvation is freely offered. Sin is fully punished. The Father has no more wrath for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And salvation has been freely offered. In Jesus, simultaneously, he was the sin bearer and the sin conqueror. That in the very same moment where he had all the sins of the world on him, at the very same moment, he was also conquering sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this mystery, that he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, he made him to be sin so that we, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, might be considered the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, be amazed by Jesus Christ. Be amazed by Jesus Christ and be even more and more and more amazed by Jesus Christ. And for those who do not know Christ in this room and have not placed faith in him, I beg with you this morning, be amazed by Jesus Christ. And don't let it just be a feeling. Let it lead to a decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ. The storyline of the Bible begins in the garden with creation. And it can be told in four sweeping parts. Creation, fall, we see through the Old Testament, redemption, and it ends with consummation. Revelation is the story of the consummation of God's purposes, where he brings all things and unites them together in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And it is in this book where God and the Lamb will consummate their kingdom for their glory. And the horror and the persecution and the tribulation will all disappear. It is at this time that God will make all sad things untrue. He will establish justice and peace in all the earth. And it will be at that time where the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And he will do all of this by finally saving his people and judging his enemies. Now look at just being one story from beginning to end. Just compare the bookends in the garden to the consummation in Revelation. And you can see this clearly. In Genesis, sin and death enter into the picture and God banishes humans from his presence. And fast forward to Revelation, God destroys sin, banishes death, and then lives with his people in the most holy place forever. And all of this is only made possible through Jesus Christ. The whole story of the Old Testament looks forward and points to this redemption, what we'll see in the next eight weeks. And in the New Testament, with the story of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus climactically fulfills promised redemption. And so now, brothers and sisters, where we are in this story is we are at a place where we look back at the cross and resurrection and find all of our hope, both in life and death, in that moment. And if you don't believe me that this story is never going to get old and it's never going to be overplayed and it's not going to get outworn, just go to Revelation chapter 5 where the people are seen glorifying the Lord and it says this, worthy are you 
to take the scroll from his hand and to bring about the consummation of all things, for you were slain. And by your blood, Lamb of God, you ransomed for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. We will never grow old of rejoicing in these truths. And so the message of the Bible is this. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. God reigns over it all. He is sovereign over all things. He saves and satisfies his people. He does it through covenant, the new covenant, a better covenant that is inaugurated by Jesus Christ in which he mediates and the covenant in which God fulfills all of his ancient promises. And he does it all for his glory. You see, the Bible tells one story that climaxes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For from him and through him and to him are all things forever and ever. Amen.